crime. It's an issue that we're all dealing with across Canada, whether you're in Edmonton, Halifax, Puerto Peak, Nova Scotia, perhaps, whether you're in Vancouver, its suburbs, Winnipeg, or here in Toronto, where I am, crime has become a major factor. Hello, welcome to the Full Comment Podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. Before we get to our guest, I want to remind you that you can, and we do encourage you to subscribe to Full Comment on whatever app or device you're listening to the podcast on. Leave a review, share it on social media with friends, and help spread the word. Crime is an issue that is dominating politics in Toronto right now. As I said, it's an issue across the country. We've seen crime rise since about 2014-2015 in most major centres, but also minor centres as well. When you speak to police chiefs and police officers across the country, one word continues to come to mind on what's happening and why this rise has been going on for so long, and that word is fentanyl, part of the opioid crisis, you could say. Now, how do we deal with it, and are we dealing with it properly? That is an issue of intense debate in different parts of the country, whether it's the federal liberals coming up with bail reform proposals that most, regardless of political stripe, most Provincial premiers, city mayors, police chiefs have all said, go in the wrong direction. It's an issue when you're talking about the mayor's race that's happening in Toronto right now, where people say they just don't feel safe on the TTC due to random attacks on Toronto's subway system. So how do we deal with crime? That's something our next guest can help us with. Billy Gorda was a New York City police officer, rose to the level of captain before taking on a career in journalism, first as a a writer, a journalist, and then an editor with the New York Post, where he covered crime. But before he went into journalism, he helped bring in a a new era of tracking crime and stats. Billy joins us now from New York. Billy, thanks for the time. I'm delighted to be here. So you've spoken to uh, my colleague Brad Hunter several times. You and Brad used to work together at New York Post, and you've said that the decision to deal with crime is a political one. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the police in general are supposed to be an apolitical organization, and it is the most political job out of any ape non-political job there is. Uh, the <laughs> what? Mayor, what? <laughs> okay. You're not, politics is not supposed to inter, enter into policing, but it's all entirely political. Okay, whatever happens, the police commissioner here in New York, and I can't speak to other jurisdictions, but here in New York, the police commissioner answers directly to the mayor. So when the mayor calls him across the street to City Hall and says, fix that, guess what? It gets fixed. Uh, If the mayor doesn't call, uh, then everything just goes on as as it does. So now, of course, the mayor has political pressure from donors and big businesses and everything else. So he's getting political pressure for re-election money and re-election. And... That translates down, and it always goes that way. So when the mayor tells the, the, the chief of police or whoever it is, fix it, they find a way to fix it. You know, we like to say that uh, our, our police service, our courts, we're not political like you are in the United States. Oh, we're very different. But our, our Supreme Court is entirely political, just as the American Supreme Court is, um, sometimes more so, I would argue. And our police services, well... You know, politicians will say, well, I don't direct them. But suddenly, you know, if there's a protest that um, is uh, being held by a group that is friendly to the politician in charge, well, you know, you can let them get away with certain things. But if it's a protest that the politician is opposed to or they're opposed to the politician, 
suddenly things are very different. So we've all seen that. But how does this translate into something that we're dealing with right now? We've got shootings on the rise in this country. We've got in Toronto, and I apologize to our listeners outside of Toronto, but the Toronto Police Service, uh, they have a very good data portal for uh, keeping track of crime. And the violent crime, the major crime incidents, every measurement is up in this year, aside from homicide. Homicide's down, and that's great. But when we're talking about assault, robbery, sexual assault, break and enter, auto theft, and the major crime index is up 21%. You've got um, you know, a theft over $500 up almost uh, 40%. Um, auto theft up 35%. Assaults up 18%. These are things to be concerned about. So how does that idea of yours that, that it's political whether to address these things translate onto, onto that side? Okay, so what happens is in the NYPD, there was an old saying among the cops, and it's that nobody ever got hurt by doing nothing. So a lot of cops are willing to just do the status quo, keep the status quo, uh, answer their radio runs, do their job as necessary, write a couple of summonses here and there, and let it go. The idea to get involved and to to say, all right, this guy's shady, I'm going to do so, I'm going to look at him, or how fast I respond to something, or what I do, that's all, that's all uh, 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 individual-based. But the thing is, is that what are the bosses doing? You know, if, if our guy's just treading water, which is co- what cops will do without being prodded, well, then you get not, then you get this, you know? And I also want to point out where you said the homicides are down, but robberies and, and violent assaults are up. Well, they're just homicides that didn't last. They're, they're homicides in waiting. They just didn't last long enough, you know, or the guy didn't say the extra thing and get himself shot. So those things are very, very important because they're the precursors to homicide, you know, outside of, you know, I'm mad at you and I shoot you. But, you know, you rob somebody and they get a tussle and then you get shot. Well, that's the homicide. So these are the things that have to be interrupted. These are the things you have to keep order on. And these are the things where, you know, you have to have cops in the subway. You have to have cops on the street and and they have to do something. You know, just having a cop there is not enough. You know, it, it, actually, to have the cop there does help a little. But, you know, because you never know what you don't, you never know what you've prevented. But on the other hand, you know, you got to do something. We we have, we have this issue on our transit system. You talk to the head of the, the transit union um, who represents bus drivers, subway drivers, uh, transit workers across the country. They say, it doesn't matter where you are, assaults against transit operators are up and so just using the example of of the subway where i am the uh, we we had a policy put forward by the uh the management of the toronto transit commission saying yeah don't get too involved um in fact they put out a memo a couple of years ago basically warning their security operators they're basically special constables they're not full toronto constables they're special constables um, they basically warned them, if you arrest someone, you will be investigated. The last step should be arresting someone, and you've got to use every de-escalation tool to uh, make sure that there is a different outcome. Well, eventually, the guys just said, okay, well, it's easier not to do anything. As you were saying, nobody ever got hurt by doing nothing. So is that what you're talking about when you say uh, 
you know, like cops protect it or, or support it? When, if you decide to do something and you go out and uh, that deal, and you go out and you start to fight crime, there are going to be mistakes and things are going to happen that that aren't to to um, that aren't to plan. But nobody, nobody bats a thousand. Okay, cops out to get involved. There's violence. There's adrenaline. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But you know, everybody expects it to be wrapped up neat with a bow, and everybody, and nobody's hurt, and everybody comes away feeling good about themselves. It doesn't work that way. Welcome to the real world. Okay, police work when you when you're when you're at you know, when you're at the coal face. It's a, it's a dirty job, and you you got to get in if you're mixing it up. People are going to get hurt, and cops have a uh, a duty to protect other people, a duty to protect themselves. Yes, they have a duty not to not to take the extra dig at a guy or to kick him when he's down or to kneel on him. But you know, uh, the idea that it's all going to be just so genteel—it's it, a fairy tale. It's ridiculous. You were with the NYPD um, during a couple of interesting things. One, there was something called Comstat, and I'm going to ask you to explain that in a moment. But also this broken window theory. Um, you know, you, you think back of, well, I think back, you know, when I was a kid, um, the, the stories of New York crime were legendary. Now, of course, it turns out that our crime was up in, in the, the mid seventies and eighties as well. And it might've had something to do with, uh, demographics and baby boomers and a lot of young men who suddenly stopped being young men and doing stupid things. So that might be part of it, but the crime in, in New York was legendary and you brought in the, this broken window theory uh does it does that still work was that oversold um what do you think of that now that you've had years to look back on it both as a, a journalist and now as a, a retiree of sorts well broken windows is not necessarily full stop about crime windows is about neighborhoods that when they start to fall apart and conditions get bad well and conditions get bad on everything and stores close and uh, uh, lights don't get fixed, and all of these things happen that can contribute to crime, but it also just kills the neighborhood. So it just drives it down. And then, then you have a, a, a lovely crime ecosystem, if you will. But uh, it's, you know, the idea is, is that, uh, you know, if you, if you take care of the little things, the big things will start to take care of themselves. Now, you mentioned concept. So, you mentioned so yeah, let, 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 let's back up then. Let, let's explain what the broken window theory is for people that don't know it. So that was essentially it. It's like when a neighborhood starts to go to pot, if you don't fix these things, if there are broken windows, that people just feel it's okay, it's possible, just or it's, it's acceptable just to continue it. So, you know, there's an, there's an empty lot. People start to throw garbage in, and people start dumping stuff, and, the, you know, and it starts to... Um, uh, to starts to fester, it starts to expand, and now there's broken windows. Now uh, there's stores closing, and it affects the economics of the neighborhood. It affects the, it affects the the demography of the neighborhood insofar as um, you know there's no investment. It's more poor people, and we know th there has to be a, a, a there's a higher level of crime amongst poor people. So you just wind up with the with with the the uh, spiraling spiraling downward. And you, you get crime that way, but it's unnecessary one for one for crime. There's a broken window, that means someone's getting shot. It's not, it's not that way. It's, it's a little more complex than that. So it's about the holistic view of the neighborhood. Make right. sure that um, 
things are fixed so that the neighborhood is healthy and thrives. Right. right. And go ahead. So this was, but this was used by the NYPD. Was it Mayor Giuliani brought it in when he was there? No, well, we started as something similar with that, to that point of view earlier with uh, community policing, with the idea of cops would go into the neighborhood and say, hey, what's going on? What's wrong? And it was signed to a specific area. I mean, I, I had concerns about the implementation because what you had is you had cops going, uh, try, you know, the lowest level trying to fix the bigger problems. You know, so if there's this empty lot there, they go to sanitation, this garbage strewn lot, they go to sanitation and say, hey, can we clean this up, you know, and get the neighborhood together? Let's all clean this up and bring sanitation in. Well, you know, I mean, sanitation is supposed to be doing that on their own. Uh, you know, so now you get the cops involved in all kinds of other things outside of actual policing. Which is one of the things that we hear is a problem now. And uh, one of the uh, the lines that uh, the defund the police movement uses, they say, well, you know, uh, police shouldn't be social workers. Police shouldn't be mental health workers. So uh, let's take those jobs away from them, but then also take some of their budget away from them and give it to these other uh, other avenues. It, it, and And I can... Theoretically, I can see some merit in in those ideas. The cops shouldn't be the first responders to everything. They just unfortunately end up being the first responders to, to everything. Well, and why is that? Because Why is that? Because people are cheap. The cops are already paid for, and they work 24 hours a day. So if you want mental health responders, you know, you want, you want to have a, a core of mental health nurses, mental health, you know, psychiatrists, all of this stuff, you want to do all of that 24-7 in Stafford and have them respond, go ahead. But I promise you, it's going to be uh, uh, a lot less effective and a lot more expensive than the police. You send the cops into everything because they're already paid for and they're already working. Otherwise, you know, you got to pay for it. Nobody And nobody wants to pay for it. Well, one of the people that's running uh, in our, our current Toronto uh, mayoralty race is a former police chief. And he argues like, why are the cops on 24-7, but mental health support runs 9 to 5? He said, trust me, from my years as being a cop, a lot of the people that need mental health support, it's between 5 and midnight. So you got to have somebody around. And then what happens is, is that we send in our mental health support team, and when things get hairy, what do they do? They call the police. <laughs> so the whole thing is, the whole thing is just a... Just, ridiculous just because you have to say now my thing with all of it with most of these things and again back to everybody being cheap is a lot of this stuff could be uh i'm not saying fixed but ameliorated with uh, a a really really robust training system but training is expensive you know i have to develop curricula i have to venues i got to take cops off the line to do this I got, you know, so it's it's so much bigger, you know, and you want to have interactive training where instead of I'm sitting here in a classroom doodling, you know, while somebody's saying something important, I'm actually doing some hands on training here. So when you have the when when you just without the training, you know, you got you get what you get, you know, and I think for the most part, and I'm going to say this, you know, I'm as big a critic of the of the of police as anyone. You know, what you get is actually pretty good and pretty good value for money. But we're basically too cheap uh, to uh, to pay for what's what we need. What you need or what you want. You, you know, what's the, the old line? Uh, take what you want, then pay for it, says God. 
you know, take what you want. You know, do you want to do that? That's fine. But you got to pay for it. You can't just say, okay, well, we'll leave it to the professionals at nine to the, the, the mental health professionals at nine to five, and then we'll let the cops cover the the the, the bad hours. Well, the bad hours is when the the bad stuff happens. That's why they're the bad hours. Uh, Billy, I want to ask you about um, uh, Comstat. This is a computerized program that uh, you know groundbreaking in its day. Looks like NYPD still uses it. How did uh, looking at stats and and analyzing them help deal with New York's crime problem when you were uh, still an NYPD captain? Well, to be honest, Comstat really wasn't the technological revolution everybody says it was. I mean, when you look at it, it's really, when we started it 30, almost 30 years ago, it's really, really, as I say, it's more will than skill. But the thing is, it's it's an accountability system. It's really nothing more than that. It's like now we have the numbers all together, so I can ask people like, "What about these numbers?" If the police commissioner had, you know, was was calling you on the phone, you're a precinct commander, and I says, "Hey, um, you had seventy six robberies yesterday. What are you doing? You're going to pay attention to those things, you know." So this is just a faster way of doing it, and and the meetings were now you stand in the air, and it's like. The police commissioner is asking you, like, what are you doing about the robberies? What are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? And you have to have answers. And what happened then is, because what happened, we started with the numbers, then we started having meetings to discuss the numbers. And we had, had uh, computerized pin maps and all of that. And it just developed over time. It wasn't like, snap your fingers. So, uh, but when you're called out on it, you have to have the answers. And what, ha what happened early in, in the, the Bill Bratton era, the, he was the police commissioner, was that some guys just didn't make it. Some guys weren't interested. Some guys weren't able for it. Some guys got promoted and promoted and promoted because they were good at this. You know, all of a sudden, it's like, no, I have the answers. And some of those guys, you know, other other priests and commanders would take those answers and start to implement them because the police would say, uh, everybody pay attention to what he's doing. Or he'd say, at yesterday's meeting, Billy Gorda said this. And then all of a sudden, next thing, you know, people are saying that's a police commissioner-approved theory. So basically, Comstat was taking the information that was there, making it readily available to not just the commissioner, but to uh, you know different uh, aspects of the police service, so that people could be held accountable. It's only an accountability system. The, the the numbers really weren't readily available because there were different numbers that came out at different times, and um, like the, nobody wanted to use preliminary numbers because it would look bad. And all of a sudden, it's like I don't care. I want the numbers. Is, is what came down from on high. And again, what comes down from on high, people respond. So uh, uh, th then all of a sudden now we have numbers. And, you know, sometimes they're preliminary. Sometimes you get to say, listen, that number might be spurious. We might have screwed that, that number up. So uh, them, not us, because we made sure that they couldn't. Uh, we, they had to sign off on the numbers, the prison commanders, so they couldn't blame us for it. But... Uh, it was just a matter of like, this is what I want, this is, and this is what we're going to do. And again, you know, whether that came from the hall or Brighton came up with it himself or whichever, there you go. They, people respond. We've got some hard-to-come-by stats nationally in Canada. Uh, in fact, they come out years later. Uh, some police services don't put out any stats. Toronto puts out really solid stats. They're updated once a week. They're public. 
should the public get to know more about what's going on in in their community? Because we, you know, we'll we'll have the feeling that crime's going up, but you can't quantify it. You can't say, yeah, it is going up, and here's where, or look and say, well, actually, it feels like it's going up, but it's not. We don't have that in most of the the country to be able to say what's actually happening on the ground. Should that sort of thing just become the standard operating procedure for police services? I believe all information is good. How you interpret it is your business, but I believe it should be available to everybody. This is what we're doing, and this is what it is. Um, I, you know, I think that part of the role of journalism is to uh, interpret the numbers for people and to hold the police department accountable in, a, in that area and other areas, you know? Because what happens is, uh, well, my mother's 88. And my mother's like, always, oh, crime is up in the city. Crime is up in the city. It's like, my, you've got a short memory, you know? <laughs> <laughs> crime is nothing. So, I mean, compared to what it was. But the, the thing is, is that because now changes in the media, uh, crime coverage tends to be cheaper. So if somebody has a video of something happening, that becomes news. And that's a big thing. And people watch it. And plus, you could put an ad on the front of it. So that's how we cover crime. You know, when I look at, at crime coverage in, uh, in the, the, the media outlets, it's all about what's the cheapest way we can do this. And it's a couple sentences and a, and a, and a video or, a, pay, or a, a, a surveillance camera picture. Well, I, look, I'm, I'm uh, looking back over the major crime indicator overview that the Toronto Police Services publish. Uh, and in 2014, there were 30,800 incidents reported. Last year, there were 41,500 incidents reported, the highest over the last decade. That tells me crime's up. And, and then you can break it down into, well, was it assaults? Was it auto theft? Was it murder? Was it um, uh, sexual assault? All these things. It, it allows you to say, okay, what's happening? And, you know, how do you deal with it? I, I think the information is good. You're right. There's a lot of cheap stuff out there. But having the information uh, lets us uh, back up what sometimes are gut feelings. I couldn't agree more. I believe the information should be readily available to everybody. I think the police, the, my, my gripe with journalism is that you want some context on this. You know, because, again, my mother reads the paper and, and it's like crime is out of control. But really, it's not because... It used to be out of control. So, uh, you know, I think everything has to be taken in the context of bigger things. But, yes, it's very important. Everybody should know what's going on. Everybody should know where it's going on. All right, Billy, you've been on both sides. You've been a cop. You've been a journalist. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you about that. And also, uh, what lessons we can learn from the crack era that would apply to the fentanyl area. We'll talk about that when we come back. I said off the top of the show that uh, fentanyl, and the opioid crisis is a big part of what is driving our uh, current wave of increased crime, at least in Canada. Uh, but the idea that drugs are a major problem in crime is not a new one. And if you live through the 80s or the early 90s, then you remember crack. Maybe you remember Washington Mayor, Marion Barry. Maybe you remember what Toronto Mayor, Rob Ford in 2014. Uh, the crack was at one point the highly addictive substance that drove crime. I want to ask you, Billy Gorda, um, were there lessons that you learned from that era that we could apply today? Because when I talk to uh, police chiefs uh, and, and beat cops across the country, they say, well, you know what? 
This stuff is very profitable. Um, shootings are up mainly among gang members because uh, they want to protect their stash because this stuff is so lucrative. And whereas they might have used a knife before now or their fist, now they use guns. That's part of it. But also, I think the, the minor crimes are up because people are trying to, to feed that addiction. So all sounds very similar to the crack era. What could we learn from that, that time? Sounds a lot more like the heroin era than the crack era. You know, because then, that, you know, I'd be looking for, if people are looking for money to feed their addiction, burglaries tend to be up. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know that much about fentanyl because I'm out of the game. But it seems to me that if they're cutting everything and putting it in cigarettes and cutting it with people are worried about drug fentanyl and other drugs, tells me that it's so widespread. I don't know what the, I honestly don't know what the profit margins are. Um, it just seems to me to be if they're giving it away and throwing it away into other stuff, you know, sure you want to feed the addiction and take the hit, but they're not gonna the, your addicts aren't gonna last long. So uh, you know, I'm not I'm not certain on I can't speak to the economics of it all. You know, but you have to as far as it goes, it's like you have to you have to be there. You got to get him. You know, I'm not necessarily a, a big drug enforcement guy. I always wonder. I really wonder whether if we if we legalized all all drugs, whether that would be uh, uh, whether that would be the answer. I don't know that addiction rates are going to change. I don't know that they've ever changed because if you go back to laudanum and and morphine and opium and whatever whatever we had before that. You know, I'm not certain addiction rates would change because I know fentanyl is legal. I'm not trying. You know, so well, I, you know that goes back to your point. Uh, Portugal tried that, but they uh, they've legalized all kinds of drugs, but they've they've brought in addiction treatment alongside of it. Um, your comment about we're too cheap to pay for what we want uh, here, we just are, are legalizing things and not offering any addiction treatment or any supports, and it, it's horrible outcomes. Right. Well, because. You know, again, I'm not a sociologist, but you know the idea of like, uh, well, here in New York, mental health is your big numero uno problem, far and above all of it. But you can't address mental health without addressing, get without giving the house a place to live. You know, I, I, I'm in supportive housing, and with supportive housing comes some sort of uh, uh, occupational therapy, comes with all kinds of other things, and in a small group setting. Because what happens is you say we're going to build this gigantic, uh, you know. Uh, uh, hotel for, uh, for for homeless me and mental health, people are going to go nuts. But if you have a small, say, 20, 20, 30 people, you could probably jimmy that into most neighborhoods, you know, without too much screaming. Yeah, you're going to get screaming, but, yeah. but, you know, but the idea is, is that, you know, if you don't address the whole thing, you know, just address one corner of it, you know, you wind up, you, you wind up not addressing the rest of it. And that's where it falls apart. And the other thing I'd like to point out is everybody wants to blame the police for everything, and it's fine. You know, the cops are used to it. But the fact of the matter is, is that uh, uh, child protective services are an utter failure here in the city. Mental health services, forget it, the worst. You know, Department of Homeless Services, what, are, what do they do? How do they take a paycheck and go home at night? You know, I mean, really, you know, so, you know, the cops do what they can, but, you know, no one made them the, uh, the answer to everything. Yet, they are. Billy, uh, as someone that's been on both sides, what's the um, what? What are some of the crazier stories that you've seen? Either stories you've covered as a journalist, or uh, or, or that you witnessed as a as a police officer. Well, I mean that's hard to say. You know, I mean 
mostly the ones you remember. Now, remember, I, I joined the police department in 1980, and I made sergeant five years later. So it's like, you know, these are these are old, old things. But the things that bother you the most, I have to say, uh, are the kids and the wanton cruelty. You know, when kids, you know, I, I the one that always sticks with me is, is it, I found a kid abandoned under, 18 months old, abandoned under a staircase because the, the mother and her boyfriend were out, you know, out smoking crack. You know, I take the kid to the hospital, and, and I mean, I have to change a diaper, and it's like the kindest thing I could do for this kid is to shoot her because, you know, it's she's going to have a horrible life, horrible childhood, and a horrible life, and it's just going to be a compound tragedy all and all and all. And that's the thing that eats at you is the thing is just that the, the, the horror of it all. The crazy stories. Yeah, you know they're they're fun and all of that, but that that the ones that stick with you are the kids and the wanton cruelty. That just that just eats you alive. I was uh, when I was in Montreal. I was a, a mostly crime reporter. A lot of crime in Montreal. A lot of colorful characters in Montreal. Uh, but it was the um, it was the homicides that involved families, or the sexual assaults that involved families. Those were the ones that stuck with me, that haunt me. And and those are the for the police. Those are the hardest kind to uh, to prevent and get involved with. You know, no one knows what goes on behind closed doors. And when people, when when when, if 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 the last if the first contact you have is someone's dead, well, that's bad. And even the other contacts, you know, what's happening in the meantime? Who's doing something? Who? What are the courts doing? What are the uh, you know? Everybody, the, the answer to everything is get an order of protection. Well, an order of protection, unless it's made out of Kevlar, bulletproof material, it's worthless. Because if a guy's not afraid of, of jail for beating you up, he's not afraid of, of another contempt of court charge on top of it. So the the intervention and and, and the, uh, the the uh, victimization, those things have to be those things have to be dealt with, and. Unless, again, unless the police knock on every door and offer marriage counseling, which I wouldn't be surprised if they made them do that. <laughs> it's it's it because it, it everyone has a division of family services or whatever they want to call it. But what are you servicing? You know, it's all it's all after the fact. It's all you know. If you get beat up, call us. But it's like you know, how do we how do we get people that that, that have some that don't get beat up? How do we treat, teach people not to get beat up and that this is not acceptable? And that's a societal problem again. You worked for years at the New York Post. What was the uh, the major difference in shifting from being a cop to, to being in the media? Well, I'm, you know, I, I've made this point many times. It's in many ways on a, a street cop reporter, a street reporter, it's the same job. Find out what happened, write a report. I used to say that I was I was an internet journalist before there was before there was uh, before there was the internet was that big because you know you know something happens it's a triple homicide and the chief is calling and he wants to know what happened now he doesn't want to know he doesn't want to read about it in a report that you've got to type out and he'll get it on his desk tomorrow like a newspaper he wants to know what happened right now tell me what's going on so in some ways you know you're out there you're out there in shitty weather. Uh, you're out there in, in uh, uh, you know, drinking lousy coffee. You're on this. You're sitting on one side of the barrier or the other side of the barrier. Miserable. It's the same. It's the same <laughs> job. Were Were you critical of the police when you were uh, on the media side? I was critical of the police when I was in the police. 
which is why I was not in the police, which is why I didn't become a chief of police. So, yeah, you know, I mean, um, you know, there's so much odd obfuscation. There's so much they don't tell you. There's so much you have to read between the lines. Um, you know, when the police have a, a natural tendency to protect themselves, I suppose, as most people do. And, you know, you got to start to pick at things. You, you know, I would tell the police reporters when I was I was the crime editor for a while. And I was like, there's more to this. You, you got to ask me this question. This is not this is not doesn't make sense to you like that. So, I, I always say that you, you've got to listen to what they're telling you, but look for what they're not telling you. Without a doubt, because, you know. You know the, the the job is the the is to protect the department. The problem is the department is the cops. You know, so you know you're not protecting them by, you know, you're protecting the reputation basically of the chiefs and therefore the commissioner and therefore the mayor. But you know you're not helping the rank and file because there's so much screwed up stuff that goes on that um, you know some of this needs to be told. What, what do you think of the, the push to defund the police? Misguided or misstated uh, on the mark? What do you think? Insane. Uh, you know, let's get rid of the cops. Send in the violence interrupters, whatever they are. Okay? Uh, the idea that if cops do it and screw up, uh, what are relatively untrained people are gonna how are they gonna how are they going to do any better than this? I give you an example is Trump's arraignment, right? Uh last week. Okay. Cops came out in force. You got people on one side, people on the other side. There's a propensity for violence on either side. Guess what happened? Nothing. Okay? Why? Because the cops were there, they were ready for it, and nobody wanted and nobody wanted to go nobody wanted to go to jail that night. That's what you do. That's that's they if you pardon the expression, they police the demonstration. So you have to police things. And to do it without the police or to do it in half measures. And again, send untrained people to do these things. You know, if the other agencies did their job, maybe the police would have a lot less to do. Maybe you could cut cops. I'm not, I don't necessarily know that more numbers equals better policing. You know, better policing equals better policing. And we have to decide what that is. But, you know, you know, let's get rid of the cops is, Really, pretty at least in, in this society, pretty stupid idea. Well, I'd have to gr agree with that, and I've made that uh, point in uh, several of my Toronto Sun columns as we're dealing with uh, candidates who have voted to um, candidates for mayor who voted to defund the police, to disarm the police, um, you know, send you to respond to a shooting without any any sort of weapon, not just guns. Uh, it, it all seems like madness to me, but it is, um, you know, the the idea of the moment. Well, you know, everybody wants to jump on a bandwagon, and it sounds great, and maybe it gets you some votes. But in the, in, in long term, it's it's just it's just ridiculous. In, in a violent society, you have to be able, you know, you have to be able to uh, to. It's the threat of violence and the threat of arrest that that brings people in line. I'm sorry, but it's it's a hard world. You know, yeah. it's just not not going to happen that way. Any parting advice for us as we uh, we deal with our, our increasing crime here in Canada? Me, I, I always told my reporters, and I believe this when I was, when, and, I, and I preached it when I was in the police department. Look for the bosses, okay? Who, you know, to me, the most important job in the world, perhaps, is the police sergeant. What are they doing? 
Are they making the cops work? Do they make better cops? If you make better sergeants, they're going to make better bosses up the line, and they're going to make their cops better. To me, the whole thing revolves around the police sergeant. And you got to empower them, and you got to make sure they do their jobs. But the whole thing is accountability. You know, if everybody's doing their job, stuff gets handled. Also, don't look, nobody bats a thousand, okay? Uh, you know, things are going to happen. Things are going to screw up. Things are, and, and there's going to, there's probably going to, I'm certain there's going to be misconduct. And it's certainly, there's going to be, you know, uh, but in a violent world, you get violence. Um, you know, I don't, I, the, some of these things you have to accept. Billy, thanks for the time today. Oh, not at all. Good talking to you. The Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Prue, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Again, remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you're listening. You can listen through your app, through your Alexa-enabled devices, and you can help us out by giving us a rating or leaving a review or a comment. And, of course, tell your friends about us. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Lilly.